So this is actually when my name change comes up and also like when I learned a big part of my life and my mom learned a big part of my life is in 2013, I moved back from Portland. I gave it a year up there. There was a lot of racism up there, a lot of structural things that I didn't like. And I am a city person. I'm just quick. Like I'm a quick, I'm a quick talker. I talk a lot. Like I'm not, a, I'm not town folk. <laughs> like I'm a San Franciscan. I'm from this, born in the mission, raised in the Fillmore. Like that's who I am. That was Mason J, poet, historian, and fellow at the library's Hormel Center. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. In this podcast, Mason picks up where they left off in part one. They recount an incident involving verbal and physical abuse by SF cops that left them traumatized enough to quit their photography business and move to Portland. After a few years there, realizing that though they liked a lot of things about the town, they weren't happy. That and hearing about what was going on here with gentrification and Google buses prompted Mason's return. The rest of the podcast is Mason telling us what all they've been up to since about 2013. We end with her thoughts on what it means to still be here in San Francisco. Here's Mason. I know you said earlier that that you brought some of the knowledge, the photography knowledge mm-hmm. of from being a young model. In addition to that, though, were you, were you completely self-taught? Took a few classes at city colleges uh, throughout California. Okay. Uh, San Francisco City College, uh, Santa Barbara City College, Los Madonna's, like all over, mm-hmm. like classes I could take in, you know, digital photography because I was new to that. Mm-hmm. I had only shot small format photography before that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, mostly self-taught and just observing things, loving photos, knowing things like color theory, having friends who are artists. Um, I also have synesthesia, so I can see and hear and taste colors and sounds and numbers. Wow. So, like, I can almost... I don't... I, I'm trying to articulate it. I was trying to articulate this morning, actually, to someone else how I explain how it works, but I could almost just know. Like, I can see numbers mm. where lights are. Mm. Like, the, like, each light represents a different number, so if I know a certain amount of numbers are in the frame when I'm holding the camera I can anticipate what it'll look like wow. so it's like really mostly self-taught and people are always like annoyed by that because I don't have a bunch of degrees I haven't taken a bunch of courses my gear isn't like yeah no I didn't yeah. even finish yeah. I went to Brooks for a little while so I did have some really formal training because mm-hmm. um, Brooks before it got bought out by a corporation was a really good photo school on the West Coast. Right. Um, now it's like the Western Career College of Photography. <laughs> but and were you still <laughs> writing during this? Yeah, I was because I was indulging the delusion that I would become a photojournalist. Ah, and so yeah. I was like, I need to be good at talking to people. I need to be good at being around people and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And so I was still writing daily, still writing like my observations. Um, all of my, well not all of them, but a lot of my rolls of film have lines or things written about them uh, to notate where I was mm-hmm. or what I even ate that day when I shot or mm-hmm. like, what the weather conditions were or who I saw after I went out. Some might call it meta. Data. Yeah, yeah, it is right. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like unnecessary <laughs> metadata about what I'm seeing. Right. Um, because that's the archive. That's the archivist of me. So yeah, I did that. And then I was working here. I was dating. 
someone who looked out of my league, and this is why I mentioned how I looked earlier, because this is where all my life changes. Okay. Is in 2010, I was out with my girlfriend at the time at Club Six. Mm -hmm. uh, we were out for a New Year's Eve event that like our friends were even performing in. Mm -hmm. um, so it was cool. It was like big New Year's Eve. Blah, 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 blah. Keep in mind, this is the year after um, Oscar Grant dies. Right. So I'm actually a little nervous about even going out, mm -hmm. but I'm still down to go out. I'm like, okay, like what's going to happen? We're going to nightclub. It's not like I'm on a bar platform, whatever. <laughs> uh, right. So it's also the first year we're all 21. So we're all a little more drunk than we should be. Uh, we're all like four young women <laughs> in club six mm -hmm. getting turned on New Year's Eve, our first 21 year old mm -hmm. New Year's Eve in San Francisco, even though we've been. It's funny because I had been straight edge till I was 19, but okay. they had been drinking since they were teenagers. I was <laughs> like going babies. Yeah. Essentially, like from like, where we are now, babies. Yeah, like from, yeah. yeah fi they had five years of drinking under their belts. Okay. <laughs> I had a year and, uh, you know, a pre-genetic disposition to addiction. <laughs> so I was equally caught up. Yes. Uh, and so we're out, we're hanging out, and you know, this is something that even regardless of what gender I'm perceived as, I will not give up, and I think is a God-given right of any San Franciscan who chooses to take it, especially if they do not have the option to naturally stand to pee, is I pee publicly, like, relentlessly. Okay. Wherever I am, I don't care. Like, okay. I don't care. Like, that law is, like, I, c I consider laws suggestions okay. in that regard. <laughs> Uh, I mention this because this is context for the story. It's like okay. a Bay Area thing. Like a lot of Bay Area women, femmes, we just piss places because there's like nowhere to piss for, to pee for Correct. us to it's pee. A, it's, a, it's a thing. <laughs> it's here. so like you just like, I've peed in here several times actually. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, maybe I've peed in this park and I'm like, I can tell you for a fact I have. <laughs> yeah. um, but like you just go. Um, so my girlfriend was like, okay, uh, the bathroom line's too long. Let's go outside. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, naturally. <laughs> like, duh. Like, like, and tell folks where Club 6 is. Uh, Club 6 is on 6th and Market around the corner, right across the street from what's now Pinnacle Coffee. Right. Um, so, and I mentioned Pinnacle Coffee because it's, it's, it's a big part of the story. Um, or before it was Pinnacle Coffee, it was the barbershop school at that time mm. um so yeah we go outside sh i go to pee first because i am notoriously quick at peeing because i have gender dysphoria and don't want people to see my fucking bits in the air mm -hmm. <laughs> so i go pee like i come back like i'm buttony like i'm zipping up my little pants i'm wearing a brooks brothers children's jacket so <laughs> i'm like trying to get it all like together because you know like i'm queer and i'm like no nah, i don't know how to be fancy in like heterosexual san francisco so I'm, like what is the only thing that i have that i think i can wear a brooks, brooks brothers, brothers children's jacket That'll naturally do it. and so I'm wearing Levi's denim <laughs> Brooks Brothers children's jacket and I think a, a lucky brand t-shirt like Ooh. a douchebag t-shirt wow <laughs> like, check check yeah. check because I'm like how do straight people dress that's yeah you nailed it <laughs> on New Year's Eve in 2010 <laughs> yeah like a, a suit jacket with a hoodie under it, <laughs> a lucky brand Perfect. shirt and jeans um, but you have to keep in mind I'm being read as a woman and a woman of size right so she goes to pee she tosses me her purse because she doesn't want to get pee on her purse Classy lady. Um, and so as I'm holding her purse, I hear, what business do you have with that woman? Okay. Out of my ear. And I'm like, what the fuck? Right. And I like ignored it because I'm like, what a rude fucking question. And I hear it again. Hey, what business do you have with that woman? And I turn around and it's two police officers. And this is 2010. This is 2010. Or, yeah. yeah. This is 2010. And so I'm like, what? <laughs> They're like, what business do you have with that fine-ass bitch? Mm -hmm. You, what business do you have with her? And I'm like, excuse me? And I just start chuckling. Mm -hmm. Like, because I'm also, you know, like, 
three audience motherfuckers deep you know i've been waving my hands all night dancing mm-hmm. on my hot little girlfriend i'm like yeah she's hot duh mm-hmm. like <laughs> you know she's close to six feet tall stereotypically attractive mm-hmm. full-breasted white woman mm-hmm. that i a short close to 200 pound <laughs> queer person am with um and so the next thing i remember is my arm is quickly strung behind my back my right arm and i hear a pop and i'm then thrown against the wall of Pinnacle Coffee, and uh, then told to get up, and I realized at that point that my arm is likely dislocated, and Jesus. so I can't hold my arm, so I'm holding my arm, and I'm feeling like, almost like soup, <laughs> like swimming around in the mm-hmm. socket in there, mm-hmm. and I'm holding that, and I'm thinking, oh my god, what the fuck is happening, and at mm-hmm. first I'm like, this isn't happening, <laughs> and so I just start laughing, mm-hmm. like my natural trauma response is just to start laughing, which right. of course infuriates them, yeah. and so they're like, give us your ID, what do you do, a million questions at once I'm, I'm drunk also and so I'm trying like I'm answering the questions because I'm I'm a people person I know about people I know about talking to people even dumbass police officers mm-hmm. and so I give them the answer I don't give them the full line of what I do because at the time I'm also working for the city and county doing uh seminars teaching people how to work with queer and trans youth in the foster mm-hmm. care system mm-hmm. so I say I work for the city okay. and they say no you don't you you work for the city i said i work for the city let's <laughs> just say it confidently again and then they run my stuff and sure enough because i am fingerprinted and right and because my photo job was all my cash job off the books the only job i have on the books is the city, city. Mm-hmm. so the person on the dispatch says she's who she says she is mm-hmm. <laughs> like really like almost annoyed like yeah you heard that like yeah and i hear it over the walkie-talkie they instantly let me go they push me again and they say, we can arrest you for being drunk right now. What? And I said, everyone's drunk right now. It's, it's New Year's Eve. Eve. <laughs> like, Jesus. I just look him in the eye. And then my girlfriend comes back because I guess she had gotten caught kind of peeing. and oh, had to okay. stop peeing. And so sure. she comes back and she's screaming. And they're like, you get any closer, we'll arrest you both. And then on the other side of this, as if this isn't chaos enough, our other two friends come out. One of them's carrying the other. She's been roofied. Oh, God. <laughs> so she's like puking up foam, oh turning gray. God. And we're like, we need the medics. The police see this, see that we're all together. And so look at us and walk away. <laughs> like it got too dirty for them. Yeah. Like too messy. It got too messy. Suddenly, suddenly the person they were interested in, they couldn't be around. Right. So they take off into the night. We, being children, not know what to do. We take off down the street i'm holding my arm like i said it's possibly uh, dislocated. it is probably it is, it, it is dislocated yeah. i'm holding it like trying not to scream trying not to, do, so yeah, not to distract from the situation right. of what's going on while my friend is like possibly we don't know what's happening but yeah. we now know she's been roofing but we don't know what the hell's At happening the we're all 21 we're like this is, we're never going out again yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. also keep in mind this is our first new year's about as legal adults right uh, so uh, we get we're like oh my god God exists we see an ambulance at the end of the oh, street oh shit okay. so we're like hell yeah hell yeah hell yeah and so we all start walking like our friend we're carrying her like weekend at Bernie's style yeah. like she's like her legs are like getting bumped and shit on like the curb Jeez. like so you know my girlfriend who's like nearly six feet tall our other friend who's barely five foot tall they're holding this girl who's five seven so between the two of them they're like, <laughs> like, we, like and I'm like I'm, I've only got one arm so I'm just like you can't help toddling you, behind them you're carrying yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> carrying yeah. myself yeah. and all their purses <laughs> oh god and and so we get to the ambulance drivers and they're drunk 
Oh no! They refused oh to my. treat our friend. Oh my! <laughs> they said they could lose their jobs because they are drunk. Jeez and so Louise. it's like you wouldn't believe this. If, like, it sounds made up, but it all is just happening. Perfect shitstorm. And so yeah, and so we end up calling their parents. Their parents get there quicker than any ambulance can get downtown in San Francisco on New Year's Eve after midnight. Mm-hmm. So from Berkeley Hills, the parent oh. comes and drives her to uh, Alta Bates or whatever in the East Bay because they were all East. People, I was in San Francisco, so mm-hmm. I'm left in San Francisco alone. With a dislocated and so arm. I walk from the Carl's Jr. at Civic Center to my house on Divisangiri. Okay. With a broke, a dislocated, dislocated arm. arm, and I wake mm-hmm. up the next morning like, what the fuck? I reset my own arm because I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder that results in frequent dislocations or partial dislocations. Mm-hmm. So while most people might like be like, I'm going to die, I just kind of like. Like pop just it. pop it back in there, yep. uh, but I very quickly realized that I cannot professionally do photography anymore because I cannot hold my camera for more than an hour. Oh. <laughs> so there goes my business. Okay. I descend into a weird world of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the cops. Even the colors blue and white trigger me. I lose any sense. Sorry, I gave you the blue mic. <laughs> it's fine. This Shit. is a this is a fine shade of blue. But anything like that, you know, I'm I'm also you know we're over 10 years out of that now i've done a lot of work um, right. around that like right, right. years and years of necessary work okay. um, but at the time those first few years could not yeah and so i said i have to get out of san francisco because police are everywhere in san francisco uh, yeah <laughs> so yep. can, can you imagine trying to go a day without seeing the police and if you saw them it like put you into a full-blown panic panic attack right. and like i i would stop hearing i would stop seeing i could not and i had never experienced ptsd oh. in that way yeah like i had experienced the trauma of being in a two-year abusive physically abusive relationship and had never even lost it like that but you know that something right. that dramatic that charring that physically impactful to my career my livelihood my sanity I yeah. was useless and so I descended into like you know drinking all the time and just like being really bitter and did so you I leave spent, the city or? this is what happened is I was like I'm going to die if I don't leave yeah <laughs> like, and so in 2011 I left <laughs> like I like I was like a year of just like being really miserable and yeah. sad and eating and drinking and going out and doing nothing and just like self-harm yeah self-harm yeah. but like also under the guise of community because i was always around queer gay people so i was like it's okay right. i'm around people who love me but mm. like those people didn't love me i was just around mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and i like didn't even realize like you know the impact that even my trauma was having on other people and so i was like let me get the fuck out of here because i'm gonna die like, I, I could you... feel it i was like i'm gonna die if i stay here in san francisco and where did you go i moved to portland of okay. all places way and before everyone yeah. else no. <laughs> well i guess this was like i was part of the problem oh, <laughs> portland because okay. no. i moved there in 2011 but it was before P- portlandia was filmed so i will exactly. say that exactly um, yeah. um yeah so i moved to portland and i started mannying there and i started learning what it was like to be seen as any kind of body presentation I wanted because no one mm. knew who I was in right. Portland. Like I'm born and raised in San Francisco. I can't go anywhere without knowing someone or knowing someone who knows someone who knows me. Right. Like at all. Yeah. That's just the nature of the city being so small and me being in so many different crosshairs. Like unlike a lot of San Franciscans or even a lot of queer people, I don't just stay in the queer community. Mm-hmm. Like I have friends who are straight. I have friends who are black. I have friends who are white. I have friends who are sex workers. I have friends who are fucking priests. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like, like I have 
like the spectrum of sin and sin, <laughs> sinless right, right. are like are what makes me love living here. Yeah, like, interacting with all the people who you should not be interacting is exactly who I want to interact with. So, so Portland was like a a, a, re- a refresh. It was a reset, and it was like a social experiment because I was yeah. like, I wonder if I have to keep living as a woman because mm-hmm. I unfortunately blamed myself for what mm-hmm. happened, and I was mm-hmm. like, I know that would not have happened if I was a man. Hmm. Like, if I was seen as a man, I might have even been congratulated. Was it more that, in at the time, in your mind, was it more that or your skin color? Um, For you. It's both. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, because even if I had been a man of color, I would have actually maybe even been cheered on more oh, for having, like, the like white Gobra, woman. Gobra. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. oh, like, oh, she bad. Yeah. Oh, how'd you get that? Like, dumb shit like that. Yeah. Like, but it was the compound. What like fucking losing. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, the, it was the compound of, you know, the officer seeing someone that they saw as a person of color. Because the officers who stopped me were also people of color. So mm-hmm. that's how I know that it was likely more likely. Gender. Gender. Yeah. Than racial. Right. Because uh, one of the officers was, I think, either... Afro-Latin or a mixed-race African-American person and the officer who got me was a Pacific Islander. Okay. So I, I, I like, that's that's why my brain defaulted to, like, this happened because they saw me with her and they could not stand a woman like that not being available to men. Right. Not knowing that both of us are bisexual. So, so right. who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but... So, yeah. And so I said, okay, let's try out a different gender when I go to Portland. When you're in Portland. Yeah, let's see if this will work. And, you know, I wasn't on hormones. Like I said, I was still 200 pounds. I still had hair I could sit on. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let's see if it'll work. And because Portland is not not a city. It is a town. It's a town. It's a town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Even though there are queer people there and trans people there, they still have town brains. Yeah. So their little town brains were just like, that's a man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I was like, well, shit. Like, I'm living in, like, this whole new life in yeah. Portland. Like, I, what's my name? Okay. <laughs> like, like, do I want Short Man from the Sea to be my name in Portland? No, that doesn't look right. Okay. So I guess I'm not cis. Mm-hmm. And so I started transitioning socially. I started transitioning medically. Uh... Um, and then I learned that if I transitioned illegally medically, I could start transitioning legally medically. So I did that. <laughs> and is that when your name? Uh, that's, uh, that uh I named myself probably, the funny thing is I named myself based on a dream that oh. I had about a conversation with my grandmother who's okay. still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was before she had her stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a stroke that I'll talk about in a few seconds, in- induced by gentrification, actually. Mm. Uh, and this is one of the reasons I came back. Um, so it came to me in a dream. My grandma is the reason that I study history and literature and things like that. She comes from a long line of academics. Um, her ancestors were the first uh, Okinawan immigrants to Hawaii in the late 1800s. Oh, wow. wow. In 1899. So academia has been a part of our family for as long as we can remember Mm -hmm. history and knowing the history because everyone erases the Okinawan migration history. It's interesting because it was very similar to like almost Trump times is the reason the Okinawans came to Hawaii was there was basically fascist stuff going on in Japan in Japan mm-hmm. and US gentlemen's agreements happening that oh, right, right. to come over here right, so right. it's like shady politics yeah. no fascism scene is set people migrate colonial like all uh, of yeah that. and so check, she check, came check. to the mainland in the late 40s uh, somehow was not interned mm-hmm. um, 
came to San Francisco or where? Mm -hmm, Came to San Francisco where she had my mom and da 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 da. Mm -hmm. And so that's how this long line of history and knowing history and we have to preserve the history comes. So I go to Portland and I say, okay, maybe I'll start working in history. I get an interest in archives when I'm in Mm -hmm. Portland Mm because I spend a lot of time just trying to figure out what my gender is, what sexuality is, what biology is, even though I know these things because at this point I'd already worked in a physiology lab. I had already had my own experience of having a chronically ill body from the time I was born um, and things like that. So I was like, okay, I know more than the average just trans person who wants to medically transition. Let's see what's going on. So then after I spent a lot of time reading a bunch of eugenics tinged crap, Mm. I learned like, okay, this is legitimate, like blah, 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 blah. There might also even be some other things based on just my actual biology that might not even mean that I was born cis. Mm. So this is actually when my name change comes up and also like when I learned a big part of my life and my mom learned a big part of my life is in 2013, I moved back from Portland. I gave it a year up there. There was a lot of racism up there. A lot of structural things that I didn't like. And I am a city person. I'm just quick. Like, I'm a quick quick talker. I talk a lot. Like, I'm not not town folk. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, I'm a San Franciscan. I'm born in the Mission, raised in the Fillmore. Like, Mm -hmm. that's who I am. Mm -hmm. So I came back here because I was told that I probably wouldn't be able to move back if I didn't move back It was getting more difficult. Mm -hmm. Because it was like 2013 and everyone was like, you will not be able to come back. There's like these fucking buses and like da 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 (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, a fucking bus. And they were like, yeah, they cut off like little pod people and shit like at selected times. And they're taking muni stops. Yeah, yeah, that's what they said. And they said, yeah, and like our plants are dying because they're stopping in front of the muni, like the muni stops in front of, the muni doesn't stop in front of our house, but these Google buses do. And now the plants on all the corners that are on the edges of our balconies are dying <laughs> and i was like what the Jeez. fuck like what yeah. and so i moved home i was just like, like i leave for a year yeah right? i was like i leave for a year <laughs> and they've got freaks and chariots and, <laughs> yep. and so i come back and sure enough it's too hard for me to like live on my own so like i live in a big old house with a bunch of other queer people and like run around and i'm still dealing with the ptsd it's gotten a little better because there's not as much police activity in portland okay um, or at least where I was living, because I was living like way out, um, not in like the downtown Portland area. I was living in the far southeast and like hanging out with friends in northeast, which is like the bar area of Portland. Right. Um, so like the only time there's cops out there is like because someone has had like too many IPAs and like gotten <laughs> angry about something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, different world. Yeah. So what ended up happening was like I just uh, then kind of got back into it here started dicking around again started drinking and smoking and fucking around Mm -hmm. uh and then what happened was the rent stuff at midtown happened it's on christmas eve yeah Mm -hmm. they sent us what looked like a holiday card Mm -hmm. and so i think they even did this on purpose uh like because they like thinking like they're not gonna open this uh but it was actually a notice being like this is a depending on what you were paying as base rent uh 2.8 2.8 to 4.2 times rent increase. Jesus. Uh, effective like next year or some mm-hmm. shit like that. Some, something insane. 
And so everyone was like, immediately, no. Right. <laughs> like, yep. uh, we've actually paid off the mortgage here as tenants, which mm. is not our responsibility because this is not ours. We did this because we wanted to one day own these properties mm-hmm. because we were promised that in the 60s when Midtown was started. Uh, Midtown was actually started uh, as a place. Development. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so most of the Midtown residents that have now lived there for 50 years were people who were voucher recipients because they'd been displaced, my mom right. being one of them. Right. Okay. So they'd been displaced from other units throughout the Western the, edition, the Western edition, the hate, uh, and what's now Hayes Valley, yeah, and like right. things like that. Right, right. So it was like they all congregated there because those apartments failed as medical apartments. They were mm. originally built to house uh, Kaiser employees okay. and Mount Zion okay. employees, but nobody wants to live literally across the street from where they work. Right. Because <laughs> Mount Zion is two Separation. blocks down Boundaries. from Gary <laughs> and you can literally see the Kaiser parking lot from Gary and Right. So no one wanted to work, literally, within eyesight of their home. Yeah. And so they said, okay, let's give them to all these poor people that we've displaced. And so now 50 years later, 50-some years later. Yeah, so our like, mayor from this own na- from her own neighborhood, her own, own yeah. district she grew up in, yeah. decides, uh, fuck them folks. Mm-hmm. We gonna take these down because they're old, decrepit units and they need to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Well, we're like, okay, you just spent several thousand dollars redoing the entire stair sets on all the buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other things. Yes, structurally they are. If they haven't been redone since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yes, they definitely could use work. But like, what is your plan for uh, housing folks when you do that work? Right. No plan. What is your plan for the return rents when these projects are finished? No plan. (laughs) What are your plans for making sure we don't pay $4,000 in rent to live in these places that Mm -hmm. you claim are decrepit? Mm -hmm. No plan. This place that, like you said, by now, Mm -hmm. the residents should be owning. Yeah. So what happens is it starts stressing people out. Unfortunately, my grandma is one of those people it's stressed out. It stresses out a tenant named Peggy Rose who ends up having a stroke, who ends up not being able to return to her home, who ends up ultimately dying as a result of complications of uh, ulcers and mold exposure as a result of living in the union. Uh, Mr. Jose comes a little later, but he has mobility issues. So he's trying to get himself put uh, from his second or third floor unit onto the first floor. Mm-hmm. He still has to go upstairs because Midtown is not ADA accessible because mm-hmm. it was made before ADA existed. Right, 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 right. Um, so he's begging to just be moved. Mm-hmm. They're saying, okay, Mr. Jose, we'll move you, but you got to pay market rent. He says, how the Jeez. fuck am I going to pay $3,000 for one bedroom apartment? <sighs> Eventually, passes away as well. Once again, uh, Miss Dorothy Smith, uh, it shows starts showing mold symptoms. Starts starts showing other symptoms. Passes away in the not the Nico, but whatever the hotel over there in Japantown is, mm-hmm. uh, while waiting for her apartment to be cleared of mold. <laughs> so this like this series of deaths starts happening related to mold, related to heart, related to stress, related to peptic ulcers. All these things that one can only assume might be tied to the threat of a 2.8 to 4.2 in rent increase mm-hmm. to people who have been living in these rent controlled units for upwards of Decades. 30 years. Yeah, yeah. So my grandma isn't one of the ones who passes away and we don't, we can't say decidedly, but this is probably definitely a factor, ends up also having a hemorrhagic stroke, which then propels me into this idea of I now have to not only provide for my family, but 
provide for the city because I'm seeing it dissolve. Mm-hmm. Like for me, it became almost like a metaphor of like, you know, when there's a bl- like a pixel that doesn't work in a screen. Yeah. All you can see is that pixel that yep. doesn't work. Yep. For me, the pixel that made the screen bright was my grandmother's existence, my ability to have conversations with her. Mm-hmm. So watching people like Iris Canada get evicted and then pass away, watching all the people in Midtown not get evicted, but pass away as a result of preventable health issues or issues that could have only been exacerbated by like the negligence of our city government Mm -hmm. and the refusal to cooperate with tenants Mm. so for me it was like now it's me versus these buses and so (laughs) i pivoted into like still drinking heavily but like but like drinking with a purpose okay (laughs) of like destroying what people think is happening and showing them what's actually happening and that's basically what led me to where i am today is um you know i eventually stopped drinking or eventually started drinking less depending Mm -hmm. on which era i was in because i pick up and drop the habit routinely just like cigarettes i pick up and drop habits all the time addictions yeah right is that i was like okay what do people not know about tech in the city? And like I said, I've been part computer since I was a child. I have this weird relationship with tech. It's like all my work revolves around tech. Everything I do revolves around tech. I love technology. I have been able to sit in rooms that I shouldn't belong in based on Mm -hmm. my love of tech Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I have been a part of some things that people now use every day. Like I was one of the people not like the lone suggester, but there were I mean there were several of us, but I was one of the people who helped suggest that comments exist on YouTube. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) because i was one of the early youtube bloggers back in 2007 Uh, and 2008 okay (laughs) like people were like what the fuck is youtube i was like it's gonna be big (laughs) people were like you're stupid no one cares about computers and videos on the internet and i'm like i I swear (laughs) and 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 now like no (laughs) segways are gonna yeah they're like segways are gonna be big (laughs) actually these stirrup pants that just came back from the 90s (laughs) you know what is it mini discs are gonna be big no yeah yeah. (laughs) like so yeah, I said this is gonna be big. YouTube's gonna be big, and you know, things like uh, all of the social media. Social media has been a real because I like I said I'm community oriented. Mm-hmm. So I've been mm-hmm. communicating with people all over the world since I was a child. Mm-hmm. Like I used to use ICQ to talk to people oh, in Russia. There's another one. Uh, <laughs> ICQ. Yeah. So all these ways I learned to communicate, and this is what allows me to do what I do now. And it's funny because it sounds like I'm rambling, but they all actually intersect. It's like eventually I end up meeting people that I've been talking to on the internet for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I have a job for you. I have a gig for you. Or like right now, I'm dealing with the fact that until a few weeks ago, the San Francisco... I guess Grants for the Arts hadn't released my org's funding money mm. since November. You and mean so the Hormel? Or? No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, the Radar. Radar's, Radar. Uh, not just Radar, though. Uh, oh. Radar and 200 arts orgs, including the SF Symphony. Okay. <laughs> like, so, like, not just the not, tiny money. It's not only that they're not paying teachers. They're <laughs> yeah, not also no, not. No. Yeah. To, until very recently, 200 arts orgs were either underfunded or had gone entirely unfunded. So I hopefully today after this interview will resolve all of that and get paid for the first time since December 1st. But what happened is like I've been sustaining myself based on like the contributions or the weird funds or the money that people send or the food that they drop off from all these interactions that I've had over this weird ass life where I deal with, you know, druggies and junkies and people of religious order and people in academia and through all of that, I just kind of clawed my way through things, and that's what landed me at the Hormel Center. Was and like, when did that happen? Was I had joined a collective called Still Here, 
dealing oh. with my AIDS war trauma mm-hmm. um, and like all the drug war trauma. Still here as a collective of artists, mostly of color, but also not of color, um, who are born and raised or have lived in San Francisco for at least 35 years. Okay. Um, and so it's uh, people who've been here for a while or those of like the core group of us is literally born and raised. Right. And um, most of us still living here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think there's about like 35, 40 of us all together. Okay. Um, and so I joined that collective to heal from like the AIDS war and the AIDS years because mm-hmm. I went to funerals like 10 times a week during all that time. Right. And so that's just kind of what led me to the Hormel Center is Christina, who's now the head of the Hormel Center, ironically, suggested I apply for the job. Mm. I was totally unqualified for the job. I don't have a master's degree in library science. I don't like, I don't even have an undergrad degree. Um, and I had no like academic like archives experience professionally like I had been accessing archives since I was a child but like I had never been trusted to do that in a professional capacity but Mm -hmm. they were mostly wanted someone who understood social media and who could get people to know they existed and I was like those are things I know really well and so I applied and beat out candidates from all over the country i was told to get the job right on and so it was my first real job because like i said i've only had kind of jobs like working in an ice cream store working in a science lab conducting lab research on rats just to to learn their cortisol levels Mm -hmm. a child model i've never had a job that required me to even sit at a desk before (laughs) before and i had gone my whole life you know like i don't and this is funny now like but it it's like weird it's like i because i was raised in such a community way that i don't exist in capitalism like normal people Mm. so i actually struggle existing in the world because i don't exist in capitalism like i don't have a credit score right not good or bad i just don't just don't have yeah yeah it just didn't happen (laughs) like i'm envious so yeah people are like you don't show up like every time (laughs) i go like every time i go for housing and they're like we tried to find you (laughs) and i'm like yeah I've lived to see another day. <laughs> totally, <laughs> like off the grid, but maybe. <laughs> but like, like, but in, but yeah, in, like, yeah, very like much I'm, in I'm a city. In, like in the city, in the grid, <laughs> but like in terms of like the financial existence, I've always just kind of worked with what I have. Like I don't, I don't have a savings account. I don't have a credit score. So awesome. But I'm also like always poor. But I'm also like always kind of working it out, <laughs> making it happen. <laughs> and so, so yeah, that's, Center. That's how essentially how we found you two mm-hmm. four years ago yeah um, and so yeah you saw me at the tail end of that that was about a year after my grandma had had her stroke and so i had like committed myself fully to doing art and i had been so publicly declarative with that art that that's how i got noticed and that's how i was even considered a possible candidate for this job mm-hmm. was i had basically like i jokingly say i'd spent a time being the town crier as i'd gone around like talking about what had happened in the city right uh talking about one of my pet passions which is uh the queer involvement of jonestown mm. and so i talked about like i wrote a bunch of poems like uh personifying the voices of actual people who had like been at jonestown that's amazing it's yeah. a story you don't hear <laughs> yeah you don't hear don't everything even... else about jonestown yeah, you hear everything else including don't drink the kool-aid when they actually drink flavor it wasn't right it wasn't <laughs> like <laughs> the the whistleblower actually uh lived at midtown and oh. was a family friend of ours there you go well and so that's how the yeah church was over here on fillmore right? well, yeah it was two blocks away from midtown mm-hmm. and so that's how literally my she was the first oral history i ever did actually is i interviewed her when i was eight years old for a school project awesome. about um surviving jonestown because mm. she survived she not only 
was the whistleblower, but she went over there with uh, Congressman Ryan and Jackie Spearer and all mm-hmm. them, and she only survived because she played dead when they went right. to do the body checks. And she's also, uh, like, you know, just a really ferocious person and, like, went over there to because she knew things were not right because right. she could tell they were not right intuitively and they weren't. And so that's, Amazing. it's funny because I, I only talk about that so much and was only writing about it so much because I was seeing the parallels. Cause if you look at the Hormel center or not the Hormel center, the, the history center at the SFPL, they have the Jonestown papers. Okay. You can read all their literature. It reads like anything we're putting out now about how we want to end fascism, how we mm-hmm. want to make mutual aid a thing. They oh, don't right. use those words, but they're right. saying all the same things. They're using mm-hmm. communist literature. They're quoting Karl Marx. They're, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing all these things that people are like, Oh, those idiots who just drank Kool-Aid. And I'm like, you're actually the idiot. If you say drank the Kool-Aid, because you're misreporting it. Like, like you drank the Kool-Aid. Yep. (laughs) They drank flavor (laughs) in the name of communism (laughs) and they were forced to. And so, like, I was, like I said, running around the city saying all these tragedies that had happened and people were like, oh my God, people are dealing with this? And I was like, yes. And then people were like, oh, now we want to hire you to do things. And so that's where I am now. (laughs) Can you, can you breeze us through the last four years then since we, since you and I met? Um, Oh yeah. And then, and then I've got something I'd love to end on. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Cause we are at the end of this. Uh, So yeah, the last four years have looked like me coming into my own as a writer. I put out my first chat book, which is nominated for a Lammy. I'm shortlisted. So I'm very proud of that. There were 23 over 2,300 submissions this year, and there's only 25 categories that are narrowed down to five books in each category, and I'm one of those five books and one of those 24. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so awesome. I'm pretty proud of that because it's the first work I put out. I've had COVID twice. I now coach patients on dealing with long COVID using herbalism and like natural foods um, awesome. instead of using Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else am I doing? I'm like I said, I in that time since we've met, I got even more into the archives while I was working at the Hormel Center and along with Julian Delgado Lopera I founded Show Us Your Spine co-founded Show Us Your Spines which is a all queer and trans people of color archives residency so I take people into an archival collection of my choosing for them uh, for is a month. Is that in the Hormel? Um, or is it in the archives? It's either. Okay. Uh, they both work on site or they, in some cases for the pandemic, we had to switch to remote. Right. So I was literally delivering like uh, hand sanitized books <laughs> with gloves on <laughs> for parts of the pandemic yeah. um, yes. to people's doorsteps. Uh, but yeah, it's mostly on site. Um, and okay. now that we're back up, it, it will resume being on site and we'll resume having public reading. So that's basically awesome. the past four years. I joined the board at the GLBT Historical Society to put a little color there. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with the Transgender District doing a kind of location mapping, again, using archives. Okay. Uh, because we found that it's really easy to get uh, land uh, certified landmark status and legal protections for the non-destruction of buildings if you can prove they have a historical significance. Right. So what the, the, the fun part of that is just like me looking through articles for hours and hours and matching up addresses Maps. with existing bars. Love it. And so I get to sit there Love with like it. a list of like all the gay bars that ever existed Fuck and yeah. then just like look through the paper and see like when was like 
a bar raided for having cross right or when was a bar or when was someone arrested for misdressing in like 1907 my <laughs> wife is gonna make fun of me for saying this but i'm so envious because yeah. i love history yeah. and i love maps yeah no and this is the, for hello. me it's like that's awesome. one of my favorite things and yeah. like it's a skill i kind of came to through the destruction of the city right is i started a project where i was overlaying the former graveyards with areas of high gentrification and they do actually all match up mm. as you can do it like maybe try this when you get home if you like maps is if you look up like the anti-eviction mapping projects mm -hmm. gentrification map and you pull up a map of old graveyards mm -hmm. you can basically place them on top of each other yeah. and see where the money flows yeah. <laughs> and so it's just this weird thing I so i continue to work with maps i wrote a few poems for my friends who i lost in ghost ship that did pretty right. well right i've been writing ongoingly about the pandemic and the ongoing housing crisis mm -hmm. and i'm now excitedly moving into my own place soon oh, cool. once money gets settled because of like really awesome things like uh the trans th uh what is it called the trans housing subsidy i have through our trans homes sf has like literally changed my life and also like a guaranteed income from ybca so nice. it's like I've got these kind of ways that I'm using my connections to string, even though I technically can't afford to be a San Franciscan, I'm making <laughs> right. it, I'm like, I'm going to be a San Franciscan. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you could be like, well, this shouldn't be happening to me, but also the mm -hmm. situation in San Francisco well, should not be Well, that's the funny thing is like I make, like once I finally do get paid, I will make enough that I should be able to rent here, but it's difficult. It's, like, it's yeah. really strange. It's, it's all the places I'm looking at are looking at at least 1,800 a month even for a 350 square foot spot yeah and i'm just like yeah. mm. well so kind of on that topic and then you've mentioned the still here mm -hmm. um is it a collective you said I, or i call it a collective okay. but we are a family we're literally okay. a chosen family and we refer to each other as family and like get together yeah. like family it's a collective that has actually become a family i say collective because there are people who are not members of it who who are a part of our midst right <laughs> like, well so so coming at it from so many different angles gentrification displacement mm -hmm. the same thing um queer communities um communities of color mm -hmm. covid yeah gen all that stuff our theme on the show this year is we're still here mm-hmm what does that mean to you to still be here in San Francisco? I mean, you've yeah, taken yeah, us yeah. through the journey. Yeah, and I know. I think it, it means a lot. I feel like I don't take it lightly. I used to feel like it was um, a chore and a duty because San Franciscans are, especially local San Franciscans, are talked about like unicorns, like you don't exist, you're not real. And so for a long time it was like, am I real? Is my experience real? Because... No, not not even funnily, because right. people disappear. Like right. you don't like even the people you would shoot the shit about how real things are like or how things are disappearing with those people are gone. Those people mm -hmm. either OD or they get moved away or mm -hmm. they become clinically depressed after they have to help their parents move out of their childhood home. Like these are actual things that started happening to me. So I was like, Wow, this does suck, but like I'm still doing it. How am I still doing it? I continue to still do it because I'm like almost stubbornly here mm. like every time someone has been like move get out of the way i'm like absolutely not mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm just like i'm just like so not ready to hear it and i have maybe because like i just circles back to being taught autonomous boundaries as a child mm -hmm. autonomy and boundaries as a child is that i know that there is a place for me 
that regardless of whether people tell me like I belong in a place, I know that I belong in a place. Any place that I decide to put myself in is a place I belong. Because like I said, I don't play games I don't play to win. I don't show up places just to show up in them. <laughs> like, God, no. I show up to places, even if they make me uncomfortable, even if I don't want to be in them, even if I hate everyone in the room, I show up in the places that I need to be in because people are told they don't need to be in them and they don't show up in them. And so that's how those places continue to keep people out of them. Is, you know, if a, if a, if a bar has, like, a crappy dress code <laughs> that I don't like or agree with that says something like, no sports gear, you know? <laughs> like, I can't wear my Giants hat in the bar. <laughs> right. Like, fuck off. Like, well, fine. I'll wear a three-piece suit and then I'll come. And I'll do, like, I'll set up my own charcuterie set as I sit at the bar. Like, like, like no, and that's something I've actually done. Like, oh, I will shit. do shit like that. Like, if you're like, oh, you want to, you want to just, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm in a three-piece suit. I'll play your game. Play yeah, the like, fuck oh, out of your game. No, no. <laughs> yeah. oh, I thought we were fancy here. <laughs> like, right. You know? Like, like, I will do shit like that because I, <laughs> I, I get a rise out of it. Like, I, I, I get such joy out of making them mad because they don't <laughs> want to see me able to exist in their environment. You know, they assume, like, oh, this motherfucker who we're trying to keep out because he always wears Giants gear and sports gear and stuff like that, he really don't own a suit. And I'm like, no, I own a suit. I'll wear the suit. I'll bring the thing. I'll order a drink. I'll ask for a liquor I know you don't have to make you feel inadequate. Like, I will do <laughs> these things that you do to make me feel dumb mm-hmm. in my own hometown mm-hmm. <laughs> because, because I know this. And sometimes it... It works out that like I end up knowing someone who works there. That happened to me recently. I was uh, at some place, I think Mercurio in the Mission, some like bar that I would never have set foot in right. before, but I went into for like a reunion from all people from San Francisco. And I was okay. like, why are we meeting here? Yeah. And they were like, oh, one of our friends is behind the bar. And I was like, okay. Fair <laughs> like, enough. So like, yeah. So that's it. That's how I stay here as I continue to not only embrace the parts of the culture that are absolutely literally destroying my city. Cause that like, I like, fully rejecting them is actually harder than embracing mm. parts of them. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing. It's like, I can't, there's no way to pretend that they don't exist here. Mm-hmm. And that's how people often get pushed out is they're like, it doesn't exist. I don't, I don't acknowledge it. I don't let it be real. And that's when almost like a, like punch and Judy, like you get hit mm. over the head with like the mallet. <laughs> like is, is there like waiting on you? Cause that's all gentrification is, is it's a long stun. Mm. like that's what gentrification does it visually changes the landscape so you cannot recognize the street that you're on and you're like what where am i mm-hmm. it changes the people in it so you cannot say hey where'd that thing that we know go mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and then it stuns you and then you either fall or you get up and you run around and you're like oh shit i've been shocked and so that's what happens to me is most people fall <laughs> but those of us who are in still here like <laughs> we're just like oh shit time to run around <laughs> We're electrified. Actually, that's it. Is that's how I stay here. That's what it means to be here is to be constantly electrified by the chaos and the loss of the city. That was Mason J. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, we'll get to know Vander Hill of Whack Donuts. Episode 44 drops next Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the podcast was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Original photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. And the show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our fourth season, we have more than 180 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can... 
please rate and review the show so we can reach even more folks. We love email, and we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time on Storied San Francisco. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.